Let's go. Hello and welcome to episode 43 of The Figure, a podcast about lifelong learning. Each episode we figure out people, numbers and images of the past, present and future presented by Georgia Parkin and Charlotte Lorimer. Boom. Good morning. Good it morning. Early in the morning. It is 7.41. We have been awake since 6.35, just <laughs> to make that very clear. <laughs> It is a beautiful, sunny, Scottish morning. We are in Fife. In, yep. And we are sitting cross-legged, and I feel like we're about to do a yoga class. Yeah. Although... Um, I don't know how long it's going to last. Being cross-legged for... I don't know who else finds this, but being cross-legged for too long is absolute agony. Does it remind you of being in nursery? Yeah, but it was so much easier back then. <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, Why is it so hard? Is it because your limbs are longer and you're less supple or something? Well, I used to do gymnastics for quite a long time, so I don't find it as painful as you do. Well, I find it fine until it's, you know, an hour I sometimes in. get numb feet, though. What is this week meant to you? This week, to me, um, well, I'm looking out into the Scottish co- countryside. <laughs> Scottish <laughs> countryside. And this week, to me, has been about leaving London because I think I'd got to a point with it where I just... It was just too busy and monotonous. I felt like those days that we were in Suffolk, that I was just like a kid. Like, I had my swimming costume on the whole time. It was mm. in and out of the water, running, biking, boats. I mean, ice cream. Yeah. Fish and chips. Quintessential it English was, it was, country. But it was just great. It was so active. Like, mm. I love that. Mm. And just feeling quite free. And I think it's also because we used to go there when we were much younger. And so mm. it brings back the memories that we had of mm. spending time together. Yeah. The reason that we're here is because my brother is turning 21. And we have some a lot of party prep to do. <laughs> which is why we're recording this so early. Yeah. Um, what have you been reading? I started Melinda Gates' new book called A Moment of Lift. It's called that because her father was an aeronautical engineer um, and it's about the moment just before a rocket or spaceship or plane takes off um, and talking about how that metaphor translates to us in real life and about her work in empowering women. She cites this as the most significant reason why she and her husband have been able to do what they do, and they have a huge foundation, is contraception. She's like, that is the number one basic need for any woman, because that impacts their education, it impacts their work, it impacts their other children, it impacts the economic standing of their whole family. And she says, no mistake why there is exactly three years between each child, and that's because her and her husband planned it that way that's her main mission in terms of the foundation and that's what started it obviously there's loads more to that but contraception was her kind of main um that's so interesting because mm, it's so obvious isn't it yeah that's what I mean, it is. all, all women i pretty much all women i know yeah. are on some form of contraception yeah there's this absolutely brilliant charity and i think it's called blue venture but i might be wrong on that um it won the st andrews prize which was um, an environmental prize that my dad was involved in a couple of years ago and it was the first time i think that they'd given the prize to something that was related to contraception um and it was essentially a project in madagascar 
where they were educating women and men um, about contraception. And I think they were just handing out condoms. Mm. Like, it was so simple. Mm. But it then reduced the population over a certain number of years, which mm. then reduced the impact on the fishermen. Mm-hmm. And because people had fewer people in their family, then that made everybody's lives easier. Easier. Totally. Yeah. It just benefited absolutely everybody. Mm. And it was such a simple um, and repeatable yeah. project. Well, it's the sort of thing that was held back from women for years, wasn't it? Because, mm. And that kept them dependent. I find stop. it very interesting <laughs> to talk to um, family friends who are a bit older or godmothers um, who remember and lived in a time before that was mm. normal in our like Western I spoke society. to my grandmother about it before she died about it, and she just <clears> said it was the most wonderful yeah. thing. It just because we've totally grown up in a time freed. where that's just we don't really mm. know anything different mm. in a country where we don't know anything different. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. What about you? Um, I finished the Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison, which we talked about in last week, last episode, mm-hmm. and I would recommend that people read it for its beautiful words as we spoke about, um, but also the story, which I did not see coming at all. Um, You're introduced to quite a few different characters, Mm. and there's a particular character who I felt uneasy about all the way from the moment he was introduced, and then you find out why as you go on through the story, and it is very disturbing. Mm. Um, Is it the most disturbing book you've ever read? Yes. I think so. Mm. I think because there are other books where I've read, but they've been more fantasy. Yeah. You know, that there's been witchcraft yeah. or something kind of a mm. bit uh, more fiction-y mm. about it. Mm. And this feels very raw and very real and um, vulnerable. And I read it when I was on the London Underground and then coming out of it and I finished it then and I wish that I'd actually just saved it for when I could be on my own and let it settle and sink in mm. because I honestly felt like crying when I had just finished mm. and I was in Tesco's and I was just I felt like I was going to burst into tears mm. having just you know when you finish that last page and the whole thing kind of crashes over you totally. um, so very very powerful book The first figure that we are going to be talking about in this episode is Dame Kelly Holmes, who was born on the 19th of April 1970 and is currently a double gold Olympic winner um, for the Olympics. And um, the reason that we chose to do Kelly Holmes, well, actually, funnily enough, today is the day after the 15-year anniversary that she won the gold for the 800 metres in Athens. And she was 34 at the time, which means that she's 49 now. Yeah. Which is crazy. She had a whole life and career before the Olympics in the army. Mm. So she is the only Dame Colonel. Or Colonel no, she's Dame. Colonel Dame. She's Colonel Dame Kelly Holmes. Isn't that weird, though? That wasn't actually the reason... The anniversary of that 800 gold, 15th mm. year, wasn't actually why we were going to talk about her, but we no, just ended up recording it yeah. on the, a significant day. Yeah. So that was very... Uh, I think we listened timely. to a How to Fail episode mm. um, podcast with Elizabeth Day 
and we both really liked it. What were her three failures? I believe it was not getting any GCSEs or A-levels. Yeah, running and sport was her shining subject Mm. Um, and she felt that she didn't have that in other areas of school but Mm. when it came to running she just absolutely I mean just was the best Mm. she actually won the um, English school's 1500 metres when she was 12 um, and then had a kind of I guess career in in a way as Mm. a athlete when she was at school and then she stopped when she was 18 to go into the army became a heavy goods vehicle driver and then later became a physical training instructor that was another of the favorites wasn't it Mm. because I think she failed to pass that the first time Mm. and then she worked incredibly hard and then she got kind of distinction top Mm. marks I think that's the theme that comes through whenever you listen to anything of an interview with her or read anything about her it's the resilience it's the knock down get back up mm. I think she's probably the best example of that pattern that I've seen one of I think one of I don't know if, um I think so many people especially athletes lots and lots of people you're going to get to a gold medal standard of the Olympic Games you're going to have to have a pretty high level of resilience yeah um but I think the reason I say that is because she covers lots of different aspects of and examples of how you can be knocked down, get back up, mm. in that she's got her athletic career and all mm. the injuries that she sustained and then went on to become mm. the first Brit in 80 years to mm. do both 800 metre and 1500 metre gold, mm. um, the double win. And then with her mental health, so she's been she was self-harming from the age of about 27 for five Mm. years and then recently relapsed into that after the death of her mother in 2017 and then in her army as well Mm. that she was one of the few women physical training instructors my favorite story about that was on her desert island disc which we listened to yesterday Mm. how she didn't feel that she had the respect from several of the people that she was teaching yeah and so she said, right, we're going to do a three-mile run. And anyone who's behind me, you're going to have to turn up every day. And 5 a.m. Yeah. So she does it. And she just picks them off one by one, mm-hmm. all the way around. Sprint yeah. finish. So tips good. the last guy to the post. And um, then they're obviously all, okay, we should probably listen to this <laughs> little five-foot-three. Yes. Sprinter. Absolutely. <laughs> um, it's really interesting talking about her life um, before, though, and um, she was in um, foster care for the early part of her childhood. She was born to a woman who was 17 years old and grew up in Kent in a very white part of the country. It was the only kind of mixed-race girl that she knew, really. Her father was Jamaican. And, you know, this is a theme that we're all... I think a bit, well, we're a bit more conscious of now. But I can imagine 35 years ago, not at all. I mean, this sort of other, you know, otherness that she would have felt. Experience from people at school. Would have been huge. And I can imagine that would have also played into her challenges in mental health later on. I don't think it would have completely not um, affected her. And then I think her mother went on to get married and had two more children. And she talked And so did her father. Yeah, so, so I think she was father. sort of in between two different families and... Mm. Yeah. Mm. 
do you find that difficult in your experience of having separated that? parents yeah. um divorced parents now mm. um I don't know what it's like because neither of my neither my mum or nor my dad have had children with other people. Yeah, me neither. But there's still a se- separate family unit, I suppose. Yeah. Um, I also feel that it came about at a different chapter marking for me. So it mm. all happened at the beginning of university. Mm. So that is naturally a different a chapter of your life and so it just everything kind of moved with that how about you because you were much younger yeah I was about 10 um and yeah it was awful I wouldn't wish it on anyone (laughs) (laughs) essentially um yeah you never quite feel like a hundred percent settled anywhere really yeah you're not do you think that unsettled feeling plays into mental health definitely definitely I think mental health comes where you don't feel like you have the unwavering support of the team behind you at all, all times that you feel like is your solid mm. team, which gives you confidence to go about your life in the world. And I see other friends who may have, have not struggled as much as others, and I feel like they have that confidence, but backing them. Mm. The early childhood is a massive yeah, definitely. Because I found that interesting that in her um, Desert Island disc, Kelly Holmes's she talked about how her early childhood being put into foster care, her mum being very young, not being able to look after her. Mm. Uh, I think she looked after her the first few months mm. um, because her grandparents gave her the choice of, you know, you stay with here with us and you put her up for adoption or you Leave. go out and yeah. you try and do that on your own. And she did for a while, but obviously you need to work in order to make money in mm. order to pro- provide for your family but then mm. you also have a tiny baby so I, I don't know how I just I can't imagine myself like how that would feel no really th- really difficult definitely but I do think that that very early time and then just having exactly as you say that split family mm. and and that element of being mixed race in a place where very you don't see people like that no um sure. I think all of that plays into something where it it might be very very buried and much sort of very deep beneath the surface but then Mm. that can kind of bubble up later in other forms of how you feel about certain things definitely a fun fact though is that kelly holmes holds the british record for the 800 meters 1000 meters and 1500 meters for a british athlete Mm -hmm. amazing isn't that really cool really really cool yeah She's um, such an overachiever in everything. I know, but doesn't... And I love it. Yes. I also love that she just owns it. Totally. You know, she'll correct people when they say Dame Kelly Holmes. She goes, uh, Colonel Dame yeah, Kelly Colonel. Holmes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've got another fun fact, mm-hmm. which is that she worked in a sweet shop when she left school at 16. And in 2014... She went and bought the sweet shop and she turned it into a cafe, which was called Cafe 1809. And it became a kind of community hub for where she grew up. Um, And that ended last November, but it has since continued as a kind of community space. And I thought that was a lovely, very Kelly thing to do, where she goes back to her roots and she has a dream. So her dream was to buy the sweet shop and she Mm. just makes it work. I think her... Her ambition 
is incredible. Lastly, for anyone who hasn't um, discovered this yet, she has a podcast called What Do I Do? Mental Health and Me. It's an audible podcast, so you need to download it through that rather than through Spotify or Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. But she's got some brilliant guests, um, including Davina McCall, Philip Pullman, uh, Monroe Bergdorf, Alistair Campbell. It's really, really good listen, very honest mm. and open conversations um, with good questions from Kelly. And a kind of explanation at the end as to something, some aspect of mental health that they've been talking about. Yeah. Really would recommend. The second figure that we're going to talk about today is that one of every three bites of food we eat is pollinated by honeybees. And part of the reason that we're talking about this is that it's been International Honeybee Day recently on, I think, your birthday. 17th of August. Oh, what a great day. (laughs) Um, And also that uh, each month we choose a charity to highlight and support. And this month we have chosen the Bee Friendly Trust, who aim to support pollinators, including honeybees. Mm. And in the wake of, well, it's not even wake. That makes it sound like it's new. It's not new. In the honeybee crisis that we have. You know, they've been declining since World War Two. I know. It's crazy. And actually, I think that it was first brought to my attention about bees when I first explored veganism in February of 2016. I did... I went did went vegan for lent and then continued for about two years and um and now i'm about 95 percent vegan yes honey was one of those foods that vegans don't eat and i used to think well that's weird they're not an animal then i thought okay i guess they sort of are an animal they're an insect great and i thought it was just that kind of moral ground that that's what happened but actually the reason that a lot of vegans don't eat honey is because of the bee crisis and actually um by not eating honey we are not engaging in a sort of very um kind of corporate and commercial honey processing that happens all over the world it's in loads of products bee wax it's not sourced ethically at all the bees are just completely overworked and overrun Mm. um and they all you know are prone to death and infection um in doing that so i think it is really important it's kind of like if you were to eat meat to really know where it's coming from because otherwise it's just so much waste is involved in um extraction yeah think about where your honey comes from yes Mm. um and then second to that um i i guess almond milk was the second thing that also got my attention i'm so glad that you mentioned that because i was about to ask you yeah so almond milk obviously was this you know, became this movement in itself. I think before veganism even took off, almond milk was the sort I love of, this, the almond milk movement. The almond, it was, it was, it was a movement. And people, you know, thought, gosh, it's, you know, the, the carbon footprint in comparison to dairy, and this is so good for you and your skin, and dairy isn't necessarily the best um, thing to ingest as human beings, uh, which I still believe. And actually, I still believe that the carbon footprint is still lower for almond milk than it is for dairy. However, the amount of water that it takes to produce almond milk is huge, and also the amount of honeybees it takes to produce almond milk is huge because they actually use almond 
for so many things mm. you know not just milk but also flavorings it's in food yeah it's especially processed food yeah and i think it's something like 1.5 million colonies of honeybees a year are transported to the sort of golden state which is near california yeah that makes sense um i've got 1.3 million colonies are required in california yeah. to make the amount of almond yeah. milk and 80 percent of almond milk is in california yeah and it costs 300 million dollars a year wow um and they're always at risk of death and in- infection and, and actually after they've harvested the almond milk there's then not enough plants or anywhere like wildlife mm. n- near there for them to sustain themselves so they die god so it's pretty depressing and therefore i predominantly have oat milk oh that's why yes well it's not only why it's totally better i actually don't really like almond milk that much well, I do, but I don't. Yeah. I avoid it if I can. Good, because I was going to a- ask you a devil's avocado question with veganism and honey and almond milk. No, veganism's still always, 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 always better than non-veganism in terms Absolutely. of Absolutely. No, no, the no that, that wasn't going to be planet. my question. Oh, right. Okay. It was more um, about the... When I think about someone who's vegan, I quite often think, oh, well, almond milk, blah, blah, blah. Mm. And then I just having looked into the why mm. the way that almond milk is made i just wanted to know your opinion of yeah. it but, but quite I, often people who are vegan know that anyway yeah and they know that already yeah that almond milk is bad i didn't know that until we looked this up most people who drink almond milk i would suspect are probably quite ignorant to that and mm. actually have like a well it's become meat quite, and quite dairy fad as well. it's trendy fad, thing. exactly it's yeah. like avocados yes well. which also require pollination by yes. the honeybees um and coffee didn't know that yeah most plants yeah actually Courgettes, mm-hmm. tomatoes, lemons. Yeah, we, we, this could go on for a while. I know. Let's not list it. What I also found interesting was looking up the uh, impact of pesticides. Yeah. So this is part of the reason that they've been declining since World War Two because that is when they were sort of began to be introduced across mm-hmm. different crops, and obviously pesticides. Well, without pesticides, we wouldn't be able to feed as many people as yeah. we can so there are obviously lots of benefits but i've also been reading that they've been developing a new bee friendly pesticide at the university of sheffield mm-hmm. rna based biocoal and that is being developed at the moment so i hope that that becomes more widespread because part of the reason that the pesticides are so damaging is that they lower a bee's sperm count Oh my god! Did I didn't know that a bee it, could have a sperm count. Do you think it lowers human sperm count? Could do. Yeah, could do. I mean, a lot of things could lower sperm count, I suppose. But my dad was also telling me about the artificial insemination of queen bees, which sounds so invasive. Just like cows and yeah, um, pigs mm. and all farmed animals. But that's the same thing because honey's becoming an industrial mm-hmm. process, like beef. milk yeah. or beef. Yeah, they. There's different kind of processes where you mm. think more efficient, mm. more effective, mm. and the consequences on health and the earth mm. is just astronomical. Which is why we're going through a revolution at the moment in terms of thinking. We've kind of almost had health mm. be raised. Now we're having the planet raised, and the bees are yes. a vital part <clears throat> of that. Absolutely. So, what are the things that people can do to help bees? Um, do not buy any honey from a supermarket um if you want to have honey go to a beehive beekeeper Mm. 
and buy, you know, buy it literally. Buy your local source. honey. Yeah, local oh, honey. Oh, you told me a fun fact about local honey. Yeah, if you buy local honey, then it um, helps hay fever because um, all the pollen that you're going to be reacting to is going to be used by the bees to make that honey and you're less sensitive to it. So interesting. Mm, but we get a lot of honey industrially made from all over the place, US, New Zealand. Australia. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. It wouldn't I had some that. really good local honey in New Zealand. It I can imagine incredible. you did. Incredible. Yeah. At a honey cafe. It's one of my favourite places. That's really cool. And they had loads of bee hives all mm. over the orchard. It was really lovely. Yeah, and speaking of orchards, um having a meadow and encouraging wildflowers, that's a mm-hmm. huge thing that you can do. And actually the bee friendly trust that we, we were talking about, that started because they put some bee friendly plants um at the station of Putney Mm. and then that's how these two founders got into finding out more about bees what you can do to support them so just even some you know planting flowers Mm. that is Mm. helping and make sure that the flowers are where they can get the nectar from because then that's how they then pollinate other crops and also another thing about honey is often it's sold in these horrendous plastic bottles aren't isn't it? Like yeah, squeezy, squeezy ones. Yeah. Well, they're also terrible for the environment, that single-use plastic. Mm-hmm. So that's something to just... But most local honey is sold in glasses, <clears throat> glass jars. The third image that we're going to talk about today is one that I took when I went to Kew Gardens with my godmother Gillian and we were seeing the Dale Shahuli exhibition. And the specific image is of the water lilies, which is one of the most beautiful installations I have ever seen. Mm. And if anybody is going to be in London, I would so recommend it. You could just take a picnic, you know, make a day of it, choose a lovely bright sunny day um, and go and see this installation because there are, I think there are 13 different ones across the garden. But my favourite was definitely the water lilies. And it is something where he's taken inspiration from nature, but he's almost enhanced what is there already through Mm -hmm. the glass sculptures Mm. um, and the way that he's placed them. And they all have different translucency. So Mm -hmm. some of them are more opaque than others. And so they're they're all white, but some of them have kind of purple tinge to them, Mm -hmm. all made of glass. And I just think glass blowing and the creation of glass is just one of the most mesmerising things to watch Mm. ever. There's a Netflix series called um, Blown Away, which I really want to watch. Um, is there yeah gosh good old Netflix Mm. oh and I went to Murano years ago which is one of the islands near Venice and we actually saw with my friend Mary we saw how they make glass and they did kind of tutorials and they blow and then it kind of gets bigger and that's how they make those shapes and then they add colour and crystal and it's just so cool Mm. well I didn't really know who Chihuly was until Charlotte told me about him and the Kew Gardens exhibition But as soon as I put two and two together, I realised that actually he has been part of my life since day one. (laughs) And the reason for this is since 1999, so, you know, I was born in 95, so I can't remember life before this. um, Victorian Albert Museum, which is one of uh, a, a museum that is local to me, I went probably every week as a child very easy child entertainment mm. um and there One is a london's amazing free museums yeah we are so lucky that we live in a city well you do i don't know yeah sorry edinburgh are also free so it's great great um with so many free museums in london which is fantastic this is a brilliant museum to take um for children to children 
work to take children to. Um, they have an art trolley all the time, and you go around to different... Um, art exit. trolley? What's an art trolley? Oh, my God. Art, the art trolley is amazing. It's, it moves around from exhibit to exhibit, and it gives you, like, a craft. So if you're in, say... Um, I don't know, like, 18th century armour or something, you go to the art trolley and you can make, like, swords, helmets. That sounds um, so fun. Yeah, or if you're in, like, the samurai thing, you can make, like, shields and things. Or if you're in Victorian England, you make fans. Is that your favourite? Yes, of course. (laughs) So you make different pieces of art, you know, amazing for kids. Yeah. Anyway, back to my point. The Chihuly Rotunda chandelier is at the entrance of the V&A. If you have been to the V&A, you probably have seen it. It's sort of bright green and, and blue. blue. And it's huge. And it Under sits, the reception. Yeah. Oh, no, above the reception. Above the reception. Um, and it's absolutely amazing. And, you know, as a young child, I just stared at it all mm. the time. Mm. And it's so funny that it's now... We're now talking about it. Yeah. Because it's huge. I mean, the dimensions are 27 by 12 by 12 feet um, yeah, it's enormous. And there's a there's a similar one in Kew as part of this exhibition, which is in the uh, Temperate House, which has recently been renovated. Hmm. I hope I've got that the right way round. There's a Palm House as well. Well, I also wanted to know like how it's maintained because obviously du- we've experienced a lot of dust recently <laughs> in, in setting up for George's birthday. That's an in joke. Um, <laughs> sorry. But, you know, dust happens, so how do, you, how do you clean it? And they literally have to get technicians on massive ladders that just have to go That's really, such a good question. really carefully around yeah. the sculpture and just clean it. Because also individual doesn't glass spike. attract dust with the ions and... Yeah, it takes several days to, um, yeah. to clean it. Isn't that right? Isn't there something to do with negative ions and all of yes. that vaguely rings bells yes. from physics? Yes. Way back when. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Wow, that's a big process. <laughs> Cleaning the chandelier. It was first installed in 99, but actually they needed it to be bigger, so it was reinstalled in 2001. Wow. A bigger version. He extended it. That's mm. amazing. Well, some of the parts... So the the one that's the, probably the most parts at the Kew Garden exhibition... 1,882 separate elements makes up the Ickle Tower, which is a red and yellow fiery installation. Wow. It's so cool. I can't wait for you to see it. Um, I love outdoor art as well. Mm. I love that you can kind of wander and walk and talk Mm. and make your way between these different elements because I think so much of... The V&A is quite a good example, actually. I think people can go to the V&A and just feel completely overwhelmed and as though they've got to go and see everything, mm. which you should never do. Mm. Don't ever go to a gallery. You can't. You can't and try and see everything. No. Or even just even attempt to no. just pick one thing. I think my biggest example of that was going to the Hermitage in St. Petersburg. Mm. Um, a fun fact for, for that is if you were to stand, I think at every piece of art they have on display, you would be there for, I think it's, 120 years oh my god and they only have five percent of their collection on offer on display wow five percent that's a standard thing across lots of five percent (laughs) imagine if it took you a hundred years to see five percent more than a hundred years Mm. sorry Mm. i i digress 
Yeah. Well, it's like, well, so my technique normally, if you go to a gallery mm. and you feel that it is a huge one, you know, if you go to the Louvre or mm. the National Gallery, what I try and do is I look up the top 10 pieces in mm. advance, I get a map, mm. and then I just march from each piece. Yeah, you have And then to. you leave. Otherwise, you get so. <clears throat> You and then it's enjoyable. Mm. And you try and find out the story behind each piece that you're seeing because that's mm-hmm. what bring it, brings it to life as mm-hmm. well. Um, so speaking of that, the story of Dale Chihuly is that mm. he was born in Washington State in America. Mm-hmm. Um, his brother died in the Navy when he was only 15 and then his father died a year later, which is just like, that is just two tragedies, yeah, right? I mean, bad. in a row mm. and... I think art has an incredible um, role to play when it comes to therapy and kind of creative expression um, and can really help bring people out of very difficult times in that way. Um, He didn't actually start doing his glass until a few years later than that um, because he helped his mother with the interior design of a basement. He became very close to his mother after the death of these two people close to him and his family. And then he looked into glass as part of that interior design and then he ended up studying glass. So it's always interesting finding out how someone got into something that became their absolute world. Mm. Um, But in 1976, he was in a car accident and he went through the windscreen and that has caused him to have no peripheral vision Mm -hmm. and have very little depth of field and he wears an eye patch. Mm -hmm. So from quite an early stage he's worked with a team to create these pieces Mm. and I think that's another thing that lots of people have a problem with because they have this idea of the lone struggling artist yes and making everything with their bare hands and he is very much the creative director of every piece Mm -hmm. and he's a teacher mm-hmm. but he doesn't he no longer makes it well it's sort of like you're being in a business and you have the CEO and you have the managers and you have the yeah, bosses and exactly. it's, they can't they can or miss, an orchestra right or an orchestra conductor. you can't you can't function without those mm. people at the top and you also can't function with the people who are doing carrying out the operations but to have the mind behind the genius that's the really impressive part absolutely aka Rodin and all the sculptures he is the best example of that. I yeah. know. I've been listening. You have I've been, been learning. listening and yeah. learning. Yeah. <laughs> Rodin, I feel slightly different with because I don't think that Rodin was open about his use of mm. people and a studio, particularly female. Yes, exactly. Camille, Camille, Claudel. Um, yeah, I think that. But Dale Chihuly is very open about that, and it's not only the team that make the glass; it's also the team that put it all together, mm. and that must be one. Hell of a feat. Totally. Oh, and then transporting it, could you imagine? Yeah. <gasps> really, Terror. really, really hard. Yeah. But it's been 13 years since he last had an exhibition at Kew, and it is on until the 27th of October this year. So if you are going to be in London and you have a day that you'd like to spend wandering around Kew, I would highly recommend it. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of The Figure. As always, you can find us on... Instagram. <laughs> Shaw, what's you our Instagram? You were trying to get me to finish that sentence and yep. it didn't work. Um, Instagram and Twitter at Figure Podcast, or you can email us at thefigurepodcast at gmail.com. Please give us suggestions of figures. There are certain individuals who I know will be listening to this because I know who listen every week. You know who you are. I know who you are. <laughs> Please suggest. That's a bit aggressive. <laughs> 
actually, I'm really sorry. I'm really loopy. It's really early in the morning. I know. It's really I need early. to have my breakfast. Yeah. Sorry. Need... You don't have to do anything. <clears throat> Just um, thank you so much for listening. Yes. And if you would like to sponsor us, the link is in the uh, bio. And every penny is going to the Young Women's Trust. Yes. And over our half marathon. Yes. yes wish for us our luck. Half keep marathon. praying. Yeah. Keep praying.